Hello, readers. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this is a bookend brought to you by Quail Ridge Books, Raleigh, North Carolina's trusted community bookstore. My guest today is Paul Cantor. His work has appeared in the New York Times, New York Magazine, Rolling Stone, XXL, Vice, Fader, Complex, and elsewhere. His new book, his first book, is Most Dope, The Extraordinary Life of Mac Miller, which is published by our friends at Abrams Press. Paul, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. It is an honor to have you here. And my first question for you, Paul, is a form of a question I have asked everyone over most of these past two years. Uh, Where are you located geographically and how is the response to COVID-19 going where you are and how has it been going for you personally these past couple of years? Um, I'm in a town called Montclair, New Jersey. Um, Uh It's been, you know, uh, an okay process. Um, You know, this town is fairly safe and um, a lot of children and just very adult uh, and oriented and very, uh, a lot of sensible, mature people, (laughs) Um, you know, so, I feel like people are taking the proper safety precautions and following protocols and, you know, doing the things they need to do. New Jersey proper um, uh, seems to be doing, you know, most of the same. And, um, you know, it's, it's a busy area, right? Whether it was uh, in the knee deep in the beginning of the pandemic or even now, um, you know, it's, it's always been, kind of like business as usual in a sense, right? Other than those first couple of weeks where people were in like serious lockdown and I live on a street with, you know, a double line. So I could kind of see if there was people going and coming, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's, Cause it's a through, you know, kind of a, uh, an area that people are traveling a lot. Mm-hmm. And I just noticed when that started getting busy again, right? And, um, and that was probably, let's say the pandemic started in earnest in March of 2020. Mm-hmm probably by you know april or, or or may it was busy again and it's been that way sort of consistently you know through then um you know as for me um you know even a man in prison figures out a way to make sense of it all right and that's mm-hmm. kind of the, the 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 approach that i've had about this and a lot of other things you know that are difficult in life um I have most, you know, a lot of comforts that, you know, probably other people don't have. And I'm sure other people have some that I don't have. So it's all relative. And, you know, you just try to make it from one day um, to the next, um, you know, and try to make sure that, you know, you're around people that, you know, uh, love you and that you love them. And, and uh, in some sense, um, not to be too long winded with my answer, but it was pretty great because my kid was really young, you know what I mean? And mm-hmm. I got to really um, parent her hardcore, you know what I'm saying? For, uh, mm-hmm. you know, that time when she was like a baby, you know what I mean? And just do a lot of those things. So it was really, it was beautiful, you know, um, doing that and, you know, working on the book. Um, they were, you know, it was good. It was a difficult book, but a decent time. Yeah. Absolutely. Thank you, Paul. It's been interesting hearing how different folks in different geographical areas are are dealing with this thing. Well, let's now dive into your new book, Most Dope, The Extraordinary Life of Mac Miller. I have to say, 
I'm obsessed with music and with books, but for some reason that I cannot explain, Mac Miller's music has never been on my radar. It's just been one of those holes I've always had until a year or so ago when one of my old friends started talking about him regularly. Uh, As such, reading this book has been a new type of experience for me, as most artist bios I read are about artists I have developed an appreciation or obsession for prior to reading the book. Uh, My most notable experience regarding Mac Miller came right after he passed away, I believe maybe even the day after he passed away when Thundercat, uh, the extraordinary bass player, played the Hopscotch Music Festival in Raleigh and was basically uh, in tears during his whole performance as he was playing probably the show of his life. Um, Tell us briefly, Paul, what is it about Mac Miller? That attracted you to write a biography about him? Um, I mean, there were multiple things. Um, as you know, I think the book kind of is, you know, it has it touches on a lot of different things. But I mean, in general, right? Um, you know, whether it's um, a guy like uh, Elon Musk, or uh, you know, in that in that world, or if it's like a uh, Kanye West in in the music world, um, or if it's somebody in the past like a. Kurt Cobain, right? Um, I've always been pretty much, and I don't think it's just me. I think it's an American obsession with, you know, this this line between madness and genius, right? And um, there's this question of, um, in all, you know, these great people who are kind of uh, enigmas, right? It, it becomes this question of, um, you know, the thing that gives them their superpower, right, um, can often be their kryptonite. Um, and I think that uh, Mac was somebody that um, throughout his life and career, if you, you know, read, obviously read the book. So, you know, that um, I start the book talking about how I was being sent his music before his career really even began. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, with, you know, uh, people who were thinking about even like working with him seriously saying, hey, you check this out. So I kind of see, seen it from, you know, when he was really like a little kid um, and then tracking that throughout his career, you know, um, I kind of watched that, that little bit of roller coaster. Um, and I saw, um, I was talking to somebody about this last night. I was actually at his, um, you know, he did a listening session for his album, Blue Slide Park, which I talk about in the book, right. Um, that, that was an album that got, you know, sort of critically panned. I was there. I remember talking to him about the album, you know what I mean? So I saw Mm -hmm. him kind of going up, 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 and then I kind of saw it get a little rocky and then I saw him get through it. Then I saw it get rocky again. And then, you know, ultimately where it sort of ended up, there was in that process, a little bit of a tabloid version of who he was that became a little bit of a remembrance. There were two things. It was a little bit of a tabloid version. And then there was like what I call Instagram world or Twitter mm-hmm. world, which a lot of people like to exist in nowadays where, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a famous person, um, they get reduced to their iconography. Their lived experience becomes uh, uh, basically a picture and a quote that gets put under their face, right? That has, you know, is this thing they said, but it's kind of like not who they really were, right? And um, I just thought this was a guy who, you know, he was he was really bleeding for it. You know, you could you could hear it in the music, you could see it in his life. And I wanted to um, pay tribute to that, you know, by doing the, the actual work to go in and ask the questions and figure out, you know what I mean, who he really was. That, so that was the genesis of, of the book. 
Absolutely. And we'll touch on some of those things that you just brought up throughout the course of this conversation. One thing is that you say he was really bleeding for it. And you write that the thing that made Mac truly great, the thing that will allow his name to echo into future generations, is that he just wanted it more. Can you explain what you mean by this and why it is important? Well, I think that, you know, uh, when you're in your teens and 20s right right um you can see you know this is just people not even music you can see mm-hmm. that there are people sort of stratify themselves socially right you got people who are too cool for school right mm-hmm. and they're over here and you got people who really want something and nobody's taking them seriously over here right and then you got other people you know who like sort of are in the middle right and um one thing I observed in him was there was a lot of what I consider to be um, like a little bit of an idealism um, or arguably even a naivety, right? About um, what this whole thing, this creative life is about, um, you know? And I think that uh, he had maybe gotten a little bit of a, a rude awakening about that at some point, you know? Um, and, and it did have an effect on him, Um and I try to encapsulate some of that in the book. Um, but it takes a brave person to say you want something, right? We live in a time period where, you know, people are afraid to do anything, right? Um, you know, like, it really takes a lot to do anything and really go for something and be a person from the middle of arguably nowhere, right? Um, mm-hmm. And not really have a lot of connections, and just say, turn the mic on, you know, and I'm going to do this thing. Right. And then like, and then like kind of swim with that tide as it's kind of pushing you where it is you need to go. And you're like a little bit of like, a, you're like a little bit of like a, a note in the air that a musician plays blowing in a breeze. <laughs> you know what I mean? That somebody picks up faintly, like, because they hear it on the internet or you're like, what is that? You know, you get a, something recommending something you're like what is this and and you kind of hear it and you're like oh this guy's pretty dope you know what i mean um mm-hmm. and so i felt like he was kind of like in that space and that i wanted to really like i really thought that was a really interesting quality that he had you know what i mean because um you know if you don't try anything you know what i'm saying like it's it's pretty difficult to fail <laughs> right because mm-hmm. There's nothing that you've actually been doing, but this is a guy who was, was trying pretty hard, you know what I mean? And um, I think his, his, his efforts actually are one of the reasons why he, you know, had some of the you know difficulties that he had, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Paul. Um, speaking of his difficulties, you open your book with a scene where Mac is in a bar knocking back a few drinks with friends. Uh, What was remarkable about this moment for folks who don't know anything about Mac Miller? Why start your book here? Well, nobody knows. uh, First of all, it's a little bit with with scenes like that. You know, I didn't go into writing this book with any kind of agenda. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, if I had an agenda, it was just to just learn more and and try to find out, you know, who he was really as a person. Like I said, get beneath some of that tabloid stuff and and say, what was this he like as a person? Um, So I was a little bit at the mercy of the people I was talking to. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, this is a work of nonfiction. It's not really a work of creative nonfiction, nor is it a, a work of 
fiction, right? Um, anything that's in the book is, is, you know, coming from an interview or it's coming from some research. Um, nothing's fictionalized in any sense, right? All scenes, there is some reconstruction of scenes, but, you know, most of that is based on the way they were told to me, right? Um, mm -hmm. You know, so uh, that scene, right, uh, there was a car accident that he had been in, you know, shortly before he passed away, a few months before. Um, I kind of, as a journalist, it maybe maybe it was an oversight on my behalf, right? But I was kind of I fell into probably the trap that most people did with that, which was I actually just kind of forgot about it, right? Um, mm. Like I didn't even really think of it as a as a like a a big deal because I, don't know, I guess you know people get into accidents, right? I mean, it, it you know driving under the influence is not that uncommon. Right. I mean, even though it's like against the law in most places, I think it is maybe in Texas, it's even legal, <laughs> but, um, you know, everything's legal in Texas. But, um, uh, but, um, you know, I think um, a few people like mentioned it to me. It had to have been 10 or 15 people who started bringing it up like almost immediately when I started doing the interviews. They would say, you know, that car accident, you know, that was something, you know, like there was something to that. And we didn't really pay attention. This is like his close friends. We didn't really pay enough attention to that. I should have known something was up when that happened. Right. Like that was the moment we should have kind of rallied around him and been like, what's going on. Right. Um, but I don't think it, that really ever happened. You know what I mean? Now it might've, there might've been something that occurred, but, but I, you know, for me, in the vantage point that I was at in writing this book, I don't know what that thing was. Um, I would I would assume, but I don't know. I'm sure, you know, the people around him did have, you know, uh, a come to Jesus moment about that, you know. But in terms of the people that I talked to who were very close and were in his orbit and did deal with him every day, they weren't part of that, um, you know. Uh, and... I tried to not really, one thing I think that you can pick up in the book is, and maybe you would be a good judge, you know, as a person who reads a lot of books of whether I accomplished it. Um, I try to keep myself out of the book, right? I'm not in the book really at all, other than mm -hmm. the times that, that I had something directly influenced in the book where like I might've written a review. I'll kind of talk about my review, but I don't say anything. I, I try not to have an opinion or anything. I just reconstruct the scene and I say, okay, this is, this is kind of a scene that suggests um, that's a really powerful statement that he makes in the book at that point in time to start the book. It lets you into a little bit of how he was thinking about something that was um, for most people, fairly traumatic. I know people that have been in car accidents. I've been in car accidents myself. That's not necessarily how I would, you know, me personally come away from that. Uh, you know, uh, I wouldn't say that. Right. You don't know what you don't know what's going on when a person says something like that. You say that could mean I I walked away from this and I'm this I'm um, I'm uh, I felt like this in that moment, you know, and, and that's why I did it. It's kind of a thing that doesn't have, you know, uh, um, a kind of uh, a conclusion to it. You know what I mean? Right. It, it's actually asking you to do the work. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, of figuring it out and i kind of purposely did that um not because i was trying to do some like ernest hemingway iceberg 
thing. You know what I mean? I just felt that it, you know, it, it, it was important in the context of what the book was to just kind of leave it there and let it hang. And now you can kind of see this is a whole book that kind of is about that. Right. Um, in a sense. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. He felt like an invincible person in that moment. And um, I think that you uh, have made a fantastic book out of the sources that you have. Um, let's now talk about fame. You write, uh, as we discussed earlier, that Mac just wanted it more. But once he had it, or rather, uh, once he had it on the level that he was dating someone like Ariana Grande, who basically lived her life as a social media post, uh, mm. seen all day, every day by millions of followers. Um, Mac may have reached a moment where he was thinking, oh, shit, I'm incredibly famous and I don't want to be. Uh, can you talk about the way that Mac perceived fame from his beginnings as a musician to the end of his life and maybe how this perception is paralleled by others? Kurt Cobain, who you mentioned earlier, comes to mind here. Um, I think he had a little bit of a push and pull with it, right? Um, uh, I, my personal opinion, right, is that there are some cult people that are that are mentioned in the book. Um, it kind of begins, uh, well, it doesn't begin, but it ends, right, talking about a cult comedian, right? Um, you know, Mitch Hedberg, right? That, to me, is kind of like, I think maybe what he was always after, which was, I actually don't want to be popular, right? I, I want to be somebody that is a cult person, right? And is sort of respected for being amazing in this little pocket of the universe, right? Um, you know, like you listen to Mitch Hedberg, you know, he's super funny, right? But it's like, and, and obviously he's got a, a very cult following, right? But, you know, I don't think he was ever like, um, jerry seinfeld famous you know what i'm saying nobody was ever going to give him you know a, a tv show or something like that so i think matt kind of like the current of his life and his career definitely took him to a level of fame where he was just like might as well right i'm here like just roll with it but i don't i don't necessarily get the sense from everything that he said in his life from the way he moved when he became famous um until the end he never really seemed to revel in it. I always respected, I mean, like super deeply when he was alive, the fact that he never really, he didn't really cash in on that Ariana Grande thing at all. You know, mm -hmm. um, he went through unbelievable efforts to, um, you know, to like sort of not cash in on that. He did not want to be, you know, perceived as like a guy in a celebrity relationship other than, you know, appearing on social media and stuff like that. But um, there was almost nothing, right? They didn't really collaborate like that um, other than their um, two or three songs that they have together. Um, they could have made a collaboration album, right? They, they didn't. Um, you know, they didn't make like some Jay-Z and Beyonce thing. Um, and people were obsessed with that relationship. Um, I respected that a lot because it, it could have been like a life changer for him in a lot of ways. But I just don't think he ever really wanted, he didn't want to be that. And um you know, as just, a, I'm just saying, like, as a man, I like have a lot of respect for that, you know, um, because there is, you know, you're a fan of this stuff, but, 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 you know, there does become a level where something becomes like, yo, what are you doing, man? Like, that doesn't look right. You know, and you're like, what's up with this? And people be, they become that tabloid version of themselves. He kind of did not seem to embrace that at all. And like, 
for a guy who started his career kind of like just sort of seeming to kind of go along with that, uh, you know, he just never seemed to be all that comfortable with it. And, um, you know, it was purposeful that he stayed away from it, you know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Paul. Uh, listeners, we are going to take a short break for a word from our sponsor. And then I will be right back with Paul Cantor. The Bookin Podcast is sponsored by Libro FM Audiobooks. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore, Quail Ridge Books. You can pick from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. Listeners of Bookin can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter Bookin, B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. I'm back with Paul Cantor, author of Most Dope, The Extraordinary Life of Mac Miller, which is published by our friends at Abrams Press. Paul, I want to ask you another question about fame to kind of bookend our commercial break there. Uh, fame as it relates to capitalism specifically. Um, a quote from Dale Carnegie, whom you write a bit about in regards to Pittsburgh, where Mac Miller is from, um, is, and I'm hoping you can unpack this quote for us. Uh, sorry, Dale, um, Dale Carnegie or Andrew Carnegie? Oh, sorry about that. Andrew yeah. Carnegie, not Dale, the, yeah. uh, the guy who's going to teach you how to, to make friends and influence people. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes, but Andrew Carnegie. Um, and the quote is, to continue much longer overwhelmed by business cares and with most of my thoughts wholly upon the way to make more money in the shortest time must degrade me beyond hope of permanent recovery. Uh, can you unpack this quote for us, Paul? Um, I think that, you know, I'm, I'm not a scholar on Andrew Carnegie. I learned a lot while, uh, of, uh, you know, about him while I was doing this. Um, like I couldn't, write a book on him. <laughs> um, but I think that, you know, he was somebody that um, seemed to have made enough money and at a certain point did not really want to engage with the, you know, the business of making more of it. Right. There was, um, it is a uniquely, I think an American thing to have everything bigger, faster, stronger, you know what I mean? There is that great Mick Jagger quote, you know, anything that's worth doing is worth overdoing, right? And um, mm. you can almost like trace that back to like westward, westward expansion, right? We need more mm. of this land. We need more of this, more, 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 everything, 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 right? It's very difficult to sit back and say, I've got enough. I actually don't want to do anything, right? I'm just going to sit here with myself, Right. And be sort of comfortable, you know, with what I have. So the Andrew Carnegie um, thing was I saw, you know, where he lived and where he came from and was walking around in, on those streets. And I was really deeply moved by the neighborhood that he grew up in. I was like, this mm -hmm. is like a really, you know, beautiful neighborhood. Um, and 
you can judge the not necessarily the quality, but you can judge a lot about a neighborhood by how much it's changed. Um, neighborhoods that are strong, that have strong communities, the houses stay the same, the streets stay the same, the stores may change owners, but they're still there. Um, you know, uh, they're resistant to change. They still look like 1920. 1930, 1940, 1950, right? Um, mm -hmm. America, before it modernizes, you know, before it becomes what it is now, strip malls and um, condos and whatever, you know what I mean? Um, mm -hmm. I saw that actually in his, felt like in his neighborhood, it was all rooted in that. It was in these people who were there. Um, you know, uh, I grew up, in a, you know, a small condo in Staten Island, right? That, you know, is the size of my living room now, right? <laughs> um, mm -hmm. You know, I, I, it, it, it was impossible for me to imagine President Roosevelt walking down my street, you know what I mean? Um, like to be in a place like that, you know, where the, the coach of the Steelers lives or, you know, or something like that it has to do something to you, you know, um, it, because that becomes part of your value system because the neighborhood is like that. You know, Mr. Rogers um, lives just, you know, uh, a short distance from where he grew up, right? That's Mr. Rogers, like the actual Mr. Rogers, you know what I'm saying? So when you're, you're, mm -hmm. you're talking about these areas, you're talking about Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. What is Mr. Rogers' neighborhood? It's a place where like everything is happy, right? You know what I'm saying? And people deal with like emotions and, you know, so it, it, it was thing that was unpacking unbelievable, you know, uh, um, like value systems that I saw, you know, existing there I'm not and i i didn't want to say that you know they were completely his you know his values because that would be too presumptuous <laughs> but he did move through through his life with a great degree of um humility and and um care for other people and a lot of um you know, his actions speak to that and i thought that that was rooted in where he came from you know um and what those guys were about you know even though that they were also involved in things you know obviously uh, anti-union things and all kinds of stuff that they're sort of infamous for um, too, right? They're the robber barons, right, of America, yeah. <laughs> right? Uh, but I did, I did feel that there was something important there in that history. So that's why I did that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, thank you so much, Paul. Let's now talk about a quote unquote dependable upper middle class existence. Um, is it possible to have this type of upbringing and still retain credibility as a hip hop artist, specifically as a white hip hop artist? Is this something that Mac thought about? I don't know that he was actually thinking about it that much when he was a younger person. Um, mm. I think it came up a lot when I was talking to people about him. We were talking about his early you know, days and what that was like. And it, it definitely was like a thing, you know, where people were like, hey, like, you know, that was a, that's an area like that's a really nice area in Pittsburgh, even in Pittsburgh, in that local scene, it would be like, come on, man, you're from, you know, Point Breeze or whatever, like, get out of here. You know what I mean? And, um, mm -hmm. you know, most local hip hop scenes are pretty territorial, um, you know, whether it's in a Pittsburgh or it's in, you know, um, 
I don't know, Ohio, you know, Ohio, you know what I mean? Um, like it just, it's just what it is. Um, I think like he was being unique to who he was and he had people around him who supported him. His, his, all his friends are, you know, multiracial, right? Um, he had white friends, black friends. I don't think that shit was even on their mind, right? Cause it was just, just the generation they were in and where they were from, it wasn't like super top of mind. But I think when he started becoming successful and there were people who were kind of like outside of the, you know, the, the contemporary uh, milieu of urban culture and understanding where it was going and what, and, and who were the people populating it, it did become a thing where it was like, Hey, what's going on here? And, and um, you know, and, and by them projecting it onto him, I think he did, you know, at a certain point, begin to internalize that narrative a little bit um, and be like, you know, am I exploiting a loophole in this like ecosystem? You know, uh, race is an uncomfortable subject in the music business, um, and, you know, for a lot of people. Right. Um, you know, you have a little bit of a, a, a gray area when it comes to this thing between, you know, with cultural appropriation, um, exploitation, paying homage, all of things which he dealt with, right? I mean, he, you see in the book, he gets sued, right? For um, what, $10 million or something like that, right? He gets sued for um, $10 million um, because he's rhyming over a mixtape beat, right? A thing that, everybody does every day and nobody gets sued for it right he thinks he's paying all uh, you know homage to it uh lord finesse thinks you're stealing it right mm -hmm. lord finesse had sampled the beat and never cleared it and he was getting you know he was kind of guilty of the same thing that a lot of the older musicians who when they got sampled sued the hip-hop producers over they were saying you stole my record <laughs> right um and you know there was a lot of cases like that in the early 90s so it was it was like this this really interesting thing that 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 um was happening to him i've never seen that before i, I don't think since then anybody's gotten sued for it you know um so yeah it was um it was i think tough you know what i mean uh, it was a thing it was a hurdle yeah, absolutely. And um, speaking of samples, you know, the last great um, record that featured hundreds of samples that was allowed to fly without a legal battle, I can think of as uh, Paul's Boutique by the Beastie Boys, um, another record of white rappers. Um, and similarly, Paul, can you now talk about the perception of Mac as a Jewish rapper? Why this label and what did Mac think about it? I don't think he ever, like, uh, as he talked about it and he talks about it in the book, I think he was a little surprised that, that people were latching on to him for that. It actually spoke, mm -hmm. I think, a little bit to the Jewish diaspora, right? Mm -hmm. Which is anybody that seems to represent us, we're going to, you know, latch on to. Like, there was a time when Drake, right? Drake's half Jewish. And uh, Jewish people were just like, yeah, Drake's one of us. He had a bar mitzvah. You know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. um, you know, Jewish people are, you know, a huge minority in the United States. I think there's only 5 million Jews, right? Something like 1% of the population or 2%. So it's a very small number, 350 million people in a country, right? Um, so, you know, I'm Jewish, right? You know what I mean? So 
we're just looking for anything that that is like yeah like like that's one of us you know um mm-hmm. i never really i like really identified or associated with that aspect of who he was um but i did notice when i was researching the book there was like a lot of jewish stuff and, and like which i didn't, it didn't even hit my radar at the time when it was happening i didn't even know anybody you know the times of israel was writing stories about him like um or the jewish chronicle like i was blown away that they had this coverage i was like this is nuts you know like <laughs> like um you know they have him like you know interviewing him about the chai and all that and i, I was like really um it was almost like a new thing, you know, that uh, Jewish sleepaway camp, um, which I never went to. So I didn't really, I mean, I kind of had a vague idea of what that was like from just people that I knew. My brother went to sleepaway camp, you know, um, but that was all kind of new to me because that, you know, I, I didn't have that experience, you know? Um, mm-hmm. And I was like, yeah, this is, this is cool. You know what I mean? Like, this is what I always thought camp was good, like, right. But if I was a rapper, <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, uh, thank you very much, Paul. Um, Mac had a very diverse set of influences uh, from the Beatles to Bob Dylan to Outkast to Radiohead to G-Love and Special Sauce. Uh, this is sort of an unusual set of influences to bring to hip hop, not an impossible set of influences, of course, but he's probably amongst the minority of hip hop artists drawing from Bob Dylan. And let's be honest, even drawing from Equimini, uh, one of the greatest albums of all time, in my opinion. Um, how did he gather these influences and what do they mean to his body of work? I mean, first and foremost, I think uh, the credit goes to his parents, right? Um, mm-hmm. I think his parents exposed him to a lot of music. Um, his father, I believe, played a guitar um, and played guitar for the kids, you know, often. Um, and uh, his parents are, you know, baby boomers, right? Um, that is a period of time, you know what I mean, that there's just like a lot, a lot of legendary artists in that, you know, in that uh, space, right? Um, whether it's Dylan or the Grateful Dead, um, even, you know, Springsteen, right? Uh, which I, I don't think was a big influence, you know, but um, it's just like the power in a lot of that music, right? It, it, you know, though that, that music, ha- the Beatles, has so many influences already in it that when you listen to it, you start unpacking that. And it's almost like it unwraps Pandora's box because, the, you know, um, they're kind of a fusion of a lot of different things what is dylan is he a rock star you know what i mean is he a folk musician is he a you know a, a americana you don't even know he's just dylan right he's his mm. own right um because in his songwriting you know you have uh, negro spirituals you have hymns you have um the folk stuff right um which you know pete Seeger and all these people right uh, brought into the you know into the into the culture right so there's there's a lot of that and then making it modern right it's in it's it doesn't exist in a vacuum it's in the music business right it's a it's a product it's being sold and that gets like regurgitated so now you give it you you put that in front of a kid kid is you know he's got the internet right so it's not like he's not exposed to anything youtube right um itunes right you see he's kind of a product of that generation playlists there's a little bit less of a of a cultural stigma around you know what you're listening to um, in that demo of people, right? Um, 
there's actually, if anything, right, a little bit more of uh, this celebratory notion of, of I do like everything, right? Whereas I don't know how you old you are, you know, I'm 39. Mm-hmm. My generation, you know, when I grew up, if you were into hip hop, odds are you didn't listen to other stuff, right? It wasn't like I went from listening to like, you know, Wu-Tang to going to listen to Britney Spears. Like it just didn't, you know, you, it, it was so ingrained in part of your identity that you were, you know, a Wu-Tang fan, right? That it just didn't dawn on you to be into this other thing, right? Um, you see a little bit less of that as the generations got older and the access, I mean, got younger and the access to the information and the songs and the art became more accessible. Even for myself, um, you know, I got into a lot of pop music very late. I wasn't listening to any pop music until about 2006, 2007. You know, I was in my 20s when I was discovered. I was like, what is this? I'd never even listened, you know what I mean? Because I was raised in a household with jazz. And um, mm-hmm. we had a very um, anti-popular music strain running through my home. We didn't engage with any of that stuff, right? Um, again, baby boomer parents, you know, very countercultural, you know, if it's popular, it sucks. <laughs> right. And, uh, you know, it wasn't until I had, to, I had to unlearn that. Right. As part of like mm-hmm. my generational learning and my, you know, coming of age and saying, Hey, my dad doesn't know what the hell he's talking about. Right. You know, it doesn't matter if it's success. Like the success has nothing to do with what it sounds like. Right. Um, music goes, in your ears it doesn't go in your eyes you can't you know even though i write about it nothing i write is ever going to sound better than the song you know what i'm saying like it's just mm-hmm. so um yeah i mean it was a lot of um i think it was a lot of that for him you know what i mean i think that's that's the reason why he was influenced by so many things because of just having those access the access to it and his mind being like a little bit of a sponge and wanting like going back to that wanting it more he actually wanted to mm-hmm. know more right he was like that inquisitive like i'm not shutting the door if there's a thing worth learning about i want to know it right um oh this is a cool bass player tell me more like how can i learn about that right that inquisitiveness you know what i mean is rare to find in in you know um people but when you see it in artists that's really the difference maker, right? You know, uh, Kendrick Lamar is Kendrick Lamar because he's a genius, right? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like he he's not resistant to the information. He's he's embracing it. Um, J. Cole is a genius, right? These guys are so smart. They want to know everything. You know what I mean? But that's very, you know, that's very uh, typical in those, you know, those kinds of artists. You know what I mean? And he was of that generation. You know, I would put him in their category. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Paul. And um, we are of a very similar age and as such grew up with a similar approach to music. I do have to say as a brief aside, um, when you mentioned the Wu-Tang Clan that um, I don't know if you've seen this thing that's been circulating around the internet the last couple of days of Cool Mo D's uh, report card um, for rappers. And I definitely think that he had uh, the Wu-Tang members ranked way too low uh, in the vocabulary field. I will say that. that's uh yeah, yeah I, I know that that thing that was going around actually was part of a book mm-hmm. for the ego mm-hmm. trip rap, uh, book of rapless um that i think mm-hmm. they had him make that in 97 or 98 and um mm-hmm. you know one of my um i don't even want to call him a co-worker he was somebody i worked under elliot wilson 
um, mm. was involved with that. And um, he was, I think, blown away to see that going viral, um, you know, mm. and uh, I mean, it just goes to show you how far our list can go, right? <laughs> you know? Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. It's interesting. I, I don't agree with his list, but it's still interesting to look at. Um, <laughs> well, uh, thank you, Paul. And finally, um, there's much more to talk about here, but we want to leave some of your book for our listeners and your future readers to discover. Uh, but finally, Paul, I want to ask you, will we be talking about Mac Miller's music in 20 years? Um, that's a really great question. Um, I think so. I believe so. Um, I hope that, you know, my book, right, um, helps to sort of be a guide to his catalog. Um, mm. I think that, you know, as you're reading my book, you can pull up a lot of his music and actually really kind of go like, because a lot of his music is, is uh, you know, it's, 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 it's like, uh, I don't want to use, it's autobiographical with a heightened sense of drama, right? As all great, um, you know, memoirists are, right? Um, whether in song or otherwise. So I think like a lot of what I'm writing about in the book, you can um, kind of go along with it. Um, but I think that a lot of that will, de will depend on, you know, what body of knowledge um, is created, uh, you know, based on his work. My book is one body of knowledge. There's another book that came out about him, you know, that is another body, you know, body of knowledge. There's a lot of interviews about him. And if there is more of that, you know, which I think is a good thing, there's, a, you know, hundreds of books on Bob Dylan, right? Which is one of the reasons why he is who he is, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, culture builds upon itself, Right. And it kind of um, it kind of springs forward into new generations where they kind of discover it and they say, what is this thing that my parents were listening to or whatever? Now, with Mac, I think it's 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 uh, based on the level at which he was at, you know, unfortunately, you know, at, at the time of his passing, he was actually coming up into a, a period where he was almost becoming a nostalgia act right mm -hmm. he was kind of rounding into focus in, creatively but he was you know music particularly hip-hop only has about a four or five year span where anybody cares about anything before they move on to the next thing right um he you know having really debuted in 2010 you know it was eight years right you get to that 10 year mark you start going and playing the stuff that came out 10 years ago right you tour and you say i'm going to do the, the the kids tour i'm going to play the kids you know the um i don't mean kids but like kids like his mixtape kids um i'm going to play that out that mixtape in full for my longtime fans right um and then you do that a little bit and that kind of familiarizes these this new group of people with your old music right um then two three years later right you come out with a new album right it's not kids this is this new thing and maybe you lost some new some of those old people along the way right because what is the age that most people are into music 15 you know what i mean by the time you're you know in your 20s right you got other things that you you care about right um, you got responsibilities maybe you have children you know so your, your level at which you you are really engaging with it is lower right um 
I think like that actually contributed to, you know, how powerful of a loss, right. His, his passing was because you could kind of see that he was really getting in this, this, this um, creative space that was like unbelievable, you know? Um, and it was, it was almost like you were going to have those two things kind of hitting at once. I mean, I'm in a good creative space and I'm kind of coming up on that period where I'm old enough to have people say, this guy is like, he's been around, he's, 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 he's going to last. He's, you know, he's good over here. Right. I mean, you see at the end, right. I mean, he was going to play Madison square garden, um, you know, the theater at Madison square garden, which is a smaller stage, but the state, you know, still the garden nonetheless. Right. Mm -hmm. um, in New York, you know, uh, I mean, it's getting too into probably too in the weeds, but there's a, you know, when you play venues, it's a little bit of a circuit, right. You play here, right. That gets you there. Right. You know, once you're in that little theater at the garden, that's it. You know what I mean? Cause you, the only place to go from there is to the big garden. And once you're in the big garden, you're in the arena, right? Mm -hmm. When you're in arenas, that's a game changer, right? Now you're back where you were in um, 2012, right? When he was trying to play the arenas and, and having some tr trouble with that. Right. So he was kind of getting back to, to this place that, that he really already was, you know, early on. And um, that was really interesting also, you know, just even thinking about that. Um, you know, uh, I know it's a long-winded answer to, to that question, but, um, I think people will be, you know, I, I see it even in my, where I live and different neighborhoods, places I've gone, I hear his music a lot more now, um, you know, which is, you know, really, um, a great thing, but also sad, right? Um, you know, uh, just hearing his music playing from cars or in a barbershop seeing these posters and you know it's like it's like one of these things where i think in his life you know he would have really appreciated that not not to say that nobody was playing it before because they were it was just different you know what i mean it was different right he's in you know a legendary category now right uh you know um it just i think is sad that you know um he had to pass away for that to happen right um and that's just that that's beyond his control though you know yeah absolutely well he definitely has a lot of um great writers and musicians carrying his legacy forward well thank you paul and thank you for writing this wonderful book it was a refreshing and unique reading experience for me and i know our listeners will enjoy it friends i have been speaking with paul Cantor, author of Most Dope, The Extraordinary Life of Mac Miller, which is published by our friends at Abrams Press. Paul, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Jason, thank you so much for having me. I can't wait to come down to the store and meet you in person and, and pick up some books. And you know, that was the thing that, you know, about the COVID, COVID question I didn't say. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's, you know, I would so much love to be there with you in person right that in reality <laughs> um so hopefully i get a chance to do that soon i hope so too thank you paul all right once again i would like to thank paul Cantor for joining me copies of most dope can be ordered from www.quillridgebooks.com with free shipping 
I would also like to thank our sponsor, Libro.fm Audiobooks. Please navigate to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space to get one free audiobook and support your favorite local independent bookstore in the process. My name is Jason Jefferies, and this has been Booking.